The Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 33 through 35. The word of the Lord. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. It is so good to look out and see everyone's partial faces, but to see you. This is our second to last sermon in 1 Peter, and I hope 1 Peter has felt formative for you. Um, someone recently asked me, another pastor, a couple other pastors locally here in the city I meet with once a month, and they said, um, what do you think about 1 Peter? Does it have anything to say you know, to what's going on in our culture? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I feel like 1 Peter you know, was written for us right now. It has felt incredibly relevant. And this morning, we're talking about humility, and we're talking about um, what it means to be humble in a world where, um, I don't know, you know, the selfie generation or sort of like the me, 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 you know, atmosphere that we live in militates against humility. Nothing wrong with selfies, but, um, you know, that's just where we're at right now. It's, um, you're communicating an image that may not be true, and a lot of that is... Some of that is, is just fine. It's just where we're at as a culture, and some of it really militates against God's own heart for us as human beings. So look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 5 and verse 6. And this is what he says. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just to those who are young, but every one of you, with humility one toward another. For God opposes the proud. In other words, God is against prideful people. But gives grace to the humble. Again, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he, God that is, may exalt you. Father, thanks for your word. We believe it is truth and authoritative for our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would descend on everyone in this building, that we might hear this passage with new ears and see it with new eyes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in the past couple years, I've really gotten into Greek mythology. And, uh, you know, you've probably heard some of the characters from the ancient Greek myths over the years or over your lifetime, but maybe you've never read Greek mythology or looked into it, but uh, now with the advent of the um, very studious resource called Netflix, I am able to delve deep. I've had a copy of Bullfinch's mythology. Some of you know what that is for a long time, but like, just never cracked that thing open. Um, But they're fascinating, and a lot of sort of like colloquialisms and things in our culture we don't realize, just like come from the Bible, some of it comes from Greek myth. Uh, The story of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods. Or Helen of Troy, the woman whose beautiful face launched a thousand ships. Pandora, whose curiosity leads her to open a box filled with all the world's evils. And once that box is open, you can't put the evil back in. Icarus, whose wings melted when he 
flew too close to the sun, falling to his death. And you've heard these. You know, we, we'll say something like, yep, they flew too close to the sun. You know, I mean, and it's, there's, it's deeply fascinating. Tons of stories. And in many of these stories, humans suffer the consequences of pride. More accurately, the Greek conception of pride is something called hubris. You've heard the word before, haven't you? Hubris. It is the Greek word for arrogance. And hubris happens when humans don't recognize their limitations. Now, in Greek mythology, it usually is when they try to trick the gods or be like the gods. Now, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, I don't. I can't remember the last time I tried to trick the gods. But if you expand the idea of the arrogance of sort of not recognizing your limitations, you can understand what hubris is, which is to sort of think bigger of yourself than you ought to, to think more of yourself than you ought to. And in this regard, the Greeks... And the Hebrews had a similar conception of pride. We talk about the Hebrews because we're Christians and we read the Bible, and a good chunk of the Bible was written by the Hebrews. The Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. And pride is an overestimation of one's abilities. I'm not talking about pushing yourself. We all should do that. We all should push ourselves to sort of be better at the things we do, but an overestimation of one's own abilities. Now, the Hebrews took this concept of pride a step further than the Greeks did. And pride, even if one properly estimated their abilities and worth, if it caused them to look down on another, is bad. Now, this is something the Greeks did not consider. In fact, as far as the Greeks were concerned, you know, um, if you recognize your abilities and capabilities soberly, and you had more capabilities and were better than your fellow, and you looked down on them because of that, that was fine. It is what it is. It was what it was. You were better than them. Just don't try to be better than the gods. But if you look down the end of your nose because you were in a different class than your neighbor, well, as far as the Greeks concerned, wasn't nothing wrong with that. And in the Greek world, there was that hierarchy Right, this hierarchy of power and class, right? Most of those who were in power came from a ruling class. They're aristocrats. And the biblical concept of pride is that pride is irredeemable. There is literally no redeemable qualities of pride. Let that settle in for a moment. Pride always leads to hubris, arrogance, boasting, and superiority, which always brings one into conflict with God as far as the Hebrews were concerned. And in fact, that's exactly what you see in the Bible. Pride is irredeemable. There's nothing good about pride. It inevitably, invariably brings us into conflict with God because God cares about not only what how we interact with him, but how we interact with each other, our neighbor, our fellow. And what arose was a counter-concept 
abundant in the Hebrew sources, but not in the Greek sources, and that is a concept of humility. Now, the Greeks had something similar called virtue, but it wasn't the same. This concept, this antithesis to pride, emerges in Scripture, and it's the word humility. We all know that word, but it comes from the Hebrews. It comes from the, the Judeo-Christian principle, this antithesis to pride, which is not redeemable. Now, look at what some of these verses say, Proverbs 11 and 12. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with humility comes wisdom. Humble people, there is an inherent wisdom about humility. The fear of the Lord teaches wisdom, and before honor is humility. Before destruction, the heart of man is proud, but before honor is humility. The result of humility and the fear of the Lord is wealth, honor, and life. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who have kept his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility, that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of his anger. And what it implies is that there is a wrath of God, an anger of God, a judgment of God on the proud. What is interesting when you read the New Testament is that Jesus creates this sort of grid. I call it like a quadrant. And instead of just the wicked and the righteous, it's the proud and the humble. So you have the believing proud and the unbelieving proud, and then the believing humble and the unbelieving humble. And Jesus, you can see, interacts with people sort of based on that quadrant, right? He shows grace towards often unbelieving humble people, and he gives a lot of pushback to the, the proud religious people. In his book, Humility, an unlikely biography of America's greatest value, David Bob observes that the Judeo-Christian concept of life characterizes pride as corrosive, self-destructive, like a malady that affects multiple faculties with damaging implications for one's relations to fellow humans and God. And Solomon tells us that chief among the things that God hates is a proud look, right? Six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. A lying tongue, what is another one? A proud look, right? That doesn't mean the look on someone's face. It means sort of the way that pride people look down on other people, right? A proud look. Now, why do we struggle with pride? Why do we struggle with being humble? Well, part of it's just our sinful nature. And part of it is that it feels good to be proud. It feels good to be able to boast. We want to boast. We want to. It, feels, it, kind of, you know, it strokes our ego. It feels good. It's sort of the, naturally the way we're wired as sinners is it feels good to be proud. Now, is there a sense in which there is sort of a, you know, um, a, a way that we can be proud? Like, you know, I'm, I moved into a new place and I'm mowing the lawn and I'm, you know, trying to trim it. And, you know, it's like the backyard's kind of like a, like a garden. 
and I'm really trying to maintain it, and I reseeded the other day, and yes, it's, you know, there's a sense in which I'm proud of my backyard. You know, okay. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a heart that is sort of puffed up and lifted up in arrogance. That's what it's talking about. Last week, we talked about the role of church leaders to shepherd people. And one of the things that Peter wants us to see is that it is impossible for you to be shepherded by church leaders, whether it's an elder or a pastor, if you're not humble. If you don't have enough humility to say, I need to be led. Or, I need to allow myself to hear the wisdom of others and to speak into my life. I'm not the God of my own universe. And I don't have everything all figured out. That I need to submit myself to the authority of other people to speak into my life so that I can be accountable and that they can say things to me that may be hard to hear. If there is a sort of crisis of people wanting to be with what, this is a popular term now, organized religion, right? I believe in God, but I'm not with organized religion. That may mean a lot of things. What often it means to me is, yeah, I don't want anybody telling me anything about my life. I want to do whatever I want. I don't want to have to like, submit to some you know, preconception uh, of what it means to worship and serve God. Well, you know, what's interesting is we don't treat anything else in our life that way. right? If you really want to get in shape and lose weight, you consult somebody and you may get a membership at a gym with a personal trainer. Right? I'm not with organized exercise. I just, I can do my own thing. I'm not with organized dieting. I just, I'm with unorganized exercising. I'm with unorganized dieting. I think, you know, Big Macs can do the trick. I don't need you to tell me that fewer calories and more exercise. Like, that's organized exercise. I don't, you know. I mean, we don't treat anything else like that. But we do it with God because, well, we're moral rebels. We want to do what we want to do. And we don't want anyone telling us you can't do that. Now, in some ways, that's sort of a perversion of what the gospel is. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a message of you can't. It's a message of, hey, in spite of how messed up you are as a human being, and we're all messed up, God still loves you and has provided a way for you to be close to him through his son Jesus, who actually paid the penalty of your sins by taking the punishment you deserve. That's good news. That's not you can't, that's you can. You can be close to God. You can still have a relationship with him even though you're a sinner, right? But that's what we do as a culture is we think, oh, you know, these stuffy Christians and, you know, somebody's gonna tell me how to live my life. And that, that's not, that's certainly not Peter's vision. And so what Peter is saying is, look, it's good for you to be in subjection to the spiritual authority, right? spiritual authority of leaders and elders and shepherds who are praying for you, who have studied scripture maybe a little bit more than you have, who meet regularly to sort of oversee the church and care about your spiritual health. And Peter is saying, humble yourselves to be able to submit to these people, not just the young people, right? You who are young submit to the elders, but all of you, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. I love that image. Clothe yourselves with humility. In other words, treat humility like something you are going to wrap around your whole body. Right? Clothe yourselves. 
It's an apt metaphor, I think. I have had a recurring dream for probably 20 years, maybe longer. And it's a dream that I'm sitting in church in a pew without a shirt on. And it's horrifying. <laughs> and I'm not the pastor. It's not a church I'm the pastor in. It's a church that I attend and everyone knows me. But imagine any one of you sitting in church with no shirt on. Now, if you're like ripped, I don't know, maybe you'd be like, hey, who cares? But like, like I don't know what it represents. It might represent not being prepared. It might represent being, you know, Jen could probably help me unpack that. She's a professional counselor. <laughs> I don't know what it represents. I think it, it, it means like you know, chasing preparedness because, you know, Sunday always comes really quick every week, I feel like. And even on Sunday morning, I'm just making sure everything's in order. So there's always a feeling like I'm not maybe clothed. But this image is good for us. And Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Treat humility like something you are going to wrap your entire body in. Clothe yourselves with it. All of you, he says, toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. I think we have a slide just, just for that. God is against the proud. People who are proud, prideful, arrogant, God is against those people. Because the damage, right, that they do to others. And Peter, and a parallel verse in James have in mind the passage that Leslie read this morning. Proverbs 3.34. Toward the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Now this all begs the question for us, who are the humble? Who are the humble? I want you to think about the humblest person you know, and think about what makes them humble. Let's take a minute. Now, I have to admit, when I thought about humble people, this is who popped into my mind. That's who popped into my mind. You know, Forrest Gump. He comes across as slow on the uptake, but he's actually really smart. He can do all these amazing things, but he never thinks it makes him special or better than anyone. And he has impeccable character. He lives for everyone else around him. He, he really is. I mean, it's a great movie. I don't care what, what you think. I mean, Forrest Gump's a great flick. And that's who I thought of. In the Gospels... Jesus showed preferential treatment. We can nix that slide now. <clears throat> Thanks, Gabe. Jesus showed preferential treatment not toward the religious over the irreligious, but the humble over the proud. And that reorients the entire human paradigm. Again, Jesus is coming into the Greco-Roman world where your status and station in life 
gave you the right to be proud and arrogant over those lower than you. And Jesus completely flips that upside down. You have proud Pharisees, the people who knew the law of Moses, they knew scripture, they were religious people, and you have humble tax collectors, right? You have proud Sadducees and humble prostitutes. You have proud priests and humble Samaritans. And you gotta understand why people really hated Jesus when he did this, because it totally, totally cast light and re, sort of recast the light on who the important people were. He helped his day. In highlighting the humility of these outsiders, tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans, Jesus is really pointing to character traits that God himself cares about, not tax collecting and prostitution, but qualities that even those people had that Jesus wanted to highlight, and it's their humility. And Jesus' life embodied humility in his gracious, unassuming character. So when we ask the question, here's the question for us, okay? Big question for everyone here. What does it mean to be humble? And this is what I came up with. It means to live gracious, unassuming, character-driven lives. And I'm going to unpack all three of these. What it means to be gracious, unassuming, and live character-driven lives. So number one, to live graciously. To live graciously is to Grant others the courtesy you hope would be given to you. You know how when you interact with somebody and maybe you have a disagreement with them, but they were like kind and they behaved in a way that you were able to talk to someone else and say, you know, they're gracious people. Or you've seen them interact with someone else, especially people they disagreed with. They're generous towards other people's faults. Gracious people are that way. This is part and parcel of what it means to be humble. To be gracious with other people's faults. To give others the benefit of the doubt. And to sympathize with other people. That's what it means to be gracious. Now some of you say, well doesn't it mean just to show grace towards others? Yes, but in our human context, like, it's more than that. Gracious people do all of these things. An example of this is specifically how you Respond to people you disagree with. Do you belittle, belittle and slander them or do you present their argument fairly and honestly? And I have to tell you, the worst example of how to interact with people you disagree with is online. I mean, read the comment sections of like, you know, any news source or whatever. I mean, it is caustic, bombastic, invective. And sometimes it's true, but that's not the point. And I think this is where our minds need to tease out the difference between what it means to hold the truth in grace. Is something someone says may be completely true, but the way you interact with others, especially if you want to win them, right? Talking about the gospel. 
has a lot to do with how you treat them and how you present their side. It's a graciousness to others that is like a, a generosity of spirit. I think of the word magnanimity, right? To be magnanimous is to be generous with others. Now, I have to tell you that, you know, for years I was terrible at it, and I'm not great at it, but I'm like learning. I'm trying to get better. I've shared the funny story that, you know, before I came to seminary, I Googled myself and realized that I had all of these accounts on different websites, most of them talking about like theology and stuff, where like my name came up in the comment sections where I was like mowing people down, like just destroying people. And some of it just didn't look like kind. And I remember frantically thinking, I'm gonna go to seminary, I'm not gonna be able to get a job in any church because anybody who's worked their salt will just like Google me and say, this guy's toxic. And you know, it was years ago, I'm talking like 15 years ago, you know, like the internet was still just kind of like gaining steam still back then. But like, you know, it was good for me in that it sharpened me as like a theologian and a thinker, but like a lot of it just didn't look good if you didn't know me. And I remember, I remember looking up like, how do you remove comments? <laughs> and, and you know, <clears throat> this is years ago. And I was like, there's no way. And so, you know, you can write the website, but a lot of times they're like, look, once you put it there, it's our property now. So, I, so I, I got this slick idea that if I changed my name, then I wouldn't come up. And guys, I'm telling you, it worked. If you've got some ugly comment online you can't remove, change the name of the account that posted. I just put my middle name there. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, I say that to say, you know, it's hard to be gracious with people you disagree with, especially when you think they're really, really wrong. And I'm talking about like important issues. So it's a magnanimity, it's a graciousness, a, a generosity that wants to understand people compassionately because here's the deal, people who hold positions that you think are bananas, they might not, might not be bananas. They may have good reasons for holding wrong ideas. Does that make sense? I'll give you a perfect example. Here's an example, okay? I think of abortion. We're Bible-believing Christians, we're evangelicals, we are against abortion, we're pro-life, right? That's sort of what characterizes us and we feel really strongly about this issue. But one of the things I think that happens is, is we present the people on the other side who are pro-choice as like bloodthirsty murderers, and maybe there are some people who are like wanton disregard for human life. But there are people who are pro-choice for reasons that if you put yourself in their shoes at least, you could sort of understand, right? In their estimation, it's a justice issue. An untimely pregnancy, especially out of wedlock from their perspective, subjugates a woman to a life of poverty which cripples her sense of self-determination. Now, I don't agree with that, but I can at least understand how someone who doesn't have my perspective would espouse that point of view. And I don't need to demonize that person, although I think abortion is horrific and wicked. And there have been you know, I think a few years ago it was 53 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. It's probably more by now. One of the things that is encouraging is abortion is actually on the downslope. It has been steadily decreasing over time. And that is something that has been true um, with different, both candidates in office over the years, Democrat and Republican. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I don't want to go too deep into that. What I'm trying to say is, I'm not even defending them, what I'm trying to say is, 
that having the spirit of Jesus means you present people who are on the other side of any issue, including the issue of faith, in the best possible light. You're generous with them. Sure, there are people on the fringes of those positions that are rotten, but there are people on the fringes of our side that are kind of rotten too. And so what we want to do is, you know, when you see those yard signs that say, be civil, you know, that's kind of what it means to be gracious. And Jesus did this all the time. He engaged people where they were and challenged their bad ideas with an appeal to truth, often hidden from their eyes. He appealed to their sense of rationality and reason and good common sense. Now, obviously, some people still rejected his message, but it didn't mean that he didn't at least try and demonstrate grace toward them. When the Pharisees thought Jesus was a blasphemer for saying to a paralyzed man, you know, be healed, Jesus appealed to their sense of reason. He didn't just say be healed, he said your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your bed and walk, your sins are forgiven. And they said this guy's a blasphemer because he's saying your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, what's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or be healed of your infirmity? The point Jesus was making was, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. I just healed a guy of cerebral palsy. Doesn't that demonstrate that I have the power to forgive sins? He, didn't, he probably didn't say as forceful as me. But he was appealing to their sense of reason. And so Jesus suffers long with people. He reasons with them. He shows them dignity by engaging their doubts and even disdain. And, and my own experience is, if I cannot engage somebody civilly, I will not engage them at all. Because if they are so toxic and caustic that any word that comes out of my mouth, they're just like blasting off, you know, DEFCON 5 nuclear warheads in their... I, I, you know I'm not going to go back and forth like this. If you want to have a civil discussion, we can do that. But Jesus suffers long with people. He shows them dignity by engaging their doubts and even disdain. And they didn't always repay him with the same generosity. But Jesus said to anyone who would follow him to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So here's an application point. Being gracious... There's a slide here. Being gracious is to grant others the courtesy you hope would be given to you. It's simple. The next is to be unassuming. Now, unassuming is a word that most people can't really define, but they, like, we know it when we see it. Right? That's a really unassuming person. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I just, he's unass they're unassuming. Well, I'll try to unpack it a little bit. To be unassuming is not wishing to be noticed or given special treatment. Unassuming people are modest. They assume nothing about how they should be treated or how you should think of them, which means if you think of them the wrong way or estimate them in the wrong way, they're not offended because they had no expectations of what you should think of them in the first place. It reminds me of the office episode when Michael Scott is told by a superior, <clears throat> I underestimated you, and he says, next time, estimate me. 
An unassuming person can be the smartest person in the room and you'd never know it until you ask them to weigh in on a matter. Have you ever had a situation like that? Quietest person in the room, there's a big debate going on, and finally you say, you know, Bob, what do you think? And when Bob weighs in or when you know, Mary weighs in, what comes out of their mouth blows your socks off. Those are unassuming people. They just kind of sit on their wisdom, their smarts, their intellect, their ability. They don't, they don't insist that you know all the things they know, that all, all the things they can do. But they wait until they're called on to use those gifts and abilities, and they use them then. The British statesman, Lord Chesterfield, in his letters to his son said, never seem more learned than the people you're with. Wear your learning like a pocket watch and keep it hidden. Don't pull it out and count the hours, but give the time when you're asked. The reason we often think of someone as unassuming is usually due to the fact that, that they conceal their wisdom or talents or intellect or some other thing that they could use to boast but don't. And it often is the, the result that we underestimated them, that when they finally speak up, we realize, oh, this person is smart. This person does have a very sharp intellect, a really good opinion on the matter. <clears throat> my brother-in-law is like that. My sister's husband, they live in Los Angeles. He's a school teacher. He is an award-winning school teacher in the state of California. Award-winning school teacher. And he's a devout believer and devout Christian. And he's not trying to be unassuming, he just is. He's one of the smartest guys I know, and his giftedness as a school teacher is so well known, so well known, that the mayor asked him personally to tutor their kid. And you would think an enterprising person would say, it's my chance, baby. You know, Michael Hewitt website, you know, tutoring, you know, all the business comes in. And one thing he says to the mayor, he says, I'm not going to charge you, just don't tell anybody. You know, he's the most unassuming person I know has the sharpest wit and intellect and is hilarious, but when you're around him, he wants to know about you. He asks you questions. And he interacts with you. Everyone he interacts with, my kids love him. Because he honor, he makes them feel special. And it's not an act, it's really who he is. Now some of us, we have to push into that because that's not naturally how we're wired. But it is a part of a humble character. It is a part of what it means to be humble. You know, Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God, the Christ, and he concealed it. The Gospel of Mark, theologians refer to, the theme is the messianic secret, which you could call Christ's unassuming messiahship. Jesus concealed and hid who he was from others because he knew that wouldn't come. He knew the best way to to convince people is not to say, by the way, everyone, I'm the, the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm the one, I'm the, I'm the one the prophets talked of, right? He, he knew that, that, was, that was a zero-sum game. <clears throat> he wanted his teaching, his ministry, his miracles to speak for themselves. And when he asks Peter, who do people say that I am? And then he says to Peter, well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the very son of God, you know, Jesus said, he doesn't say finally, someone gets it. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The unassuming person is that way. You know, 
If I have any goodness to offer, any intellect, any wisdom, any brilliance, any virtue, and someone perceives that, well, let the Lord reveal it to you. I don't have to insist on how smart or virtuous or good I am. We shouldn't be that way. So here's the application point. Unassuming people conceal their gifts and talents until it's time to use them. Unassuming people conceal their gifts and talents until it's time to use them. They're not know-it-alls, you know? Third, humble people live character-driven lives. What's character? In scripture, the word is dokme. It's a Greek word and has reference to the genuineness of a person's um, being as a result of testing. Genuineness as a result of testing. That's what character in the Bible means. Which means that you have integrity. So we can say to live a character-driven life is to do right things when we're tested or tempted to do wrong things. So character is the, the other side of being tested. It's not just believing good things. It's when you are tested and tempted to do the wrong things. Maybe hard, but you still do the right things. That's what character is. So character, in some ways, is not even, sure, it's informed by your beliefs, right, or values, but it's not that alone. Character is, someone has said, you know, doing the right things when no one's looking. That's what character is. Living character-driven lives. And you can't be humble without character. Now, we as Christians know what the right things are, right? God tells us in his revealed will, the Holy Scriptures, that's part of what the Bible does is it tells us what it means to have character because the Bible is a transcription of, God, a transcription of God's moral character himself. But you can't be humble without character. You can be kind, but kindness is not the same thing as humility or integrity. The serial killer, John Wayne Gacy, was kind. The New York mob boss, Fat Joe Salerno, head of the Genovese crime family was kind. People would say, you know, he was a very kind man. Well, sure, until he had you whacked. So kindness is not the be-all, end-all of what it means to be humble or to have character. There's a sign on many front yards in St. Louis, and it lists we believe, and at the very bottom it says kindness is everything, and I just want to say, no, it's not. Integrity is everything. Because you can be a kind sycophant. Integrity is everything. And living character-driven lives means that we have integrity. We're not just nice to people, right? God is nice, so you be nice. Like, is it, like, let's just say, like, like, boil down the gospel to this reductionism or something. No, it's integrity, right? We're not saved by our integrity. We're not saved by how much character we have. But because... God has saved us by grace through the perfectly character-driven life, the life of Jesus, we ought to strive to live character-driven lives of integrity. Character is everything. 
Some of you may remember that movie from 30 years ago, A Few Good Men, right? The hard-hitting movie, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Tom Cruise is a military lawyer defending two US Marines charged with killing a fellow Marine on the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base Camp in Cuba. And although Caffey, Tom Cruise's character, is known for seeking plea bargains, a fellow lawyer, Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway, who's played by Demi Moore, convinces him that the accused Marines were most likely carrying out an order from a commanding officer. Now, some of you who saw the movie, you remember this. I'm jogging your memory. Some of you who haven't seen the movie, well, now you got something you want to look up on Netflix or Hulu or something. But Caffey takes a risk by calling on Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, to the stand in an effort to uncover the conspiracy. And you remember that very heated scene in the courtroom, that very famous line where he says, yeah, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. And the reason I bring up that illustration from that movie is because it was a case of confusing loyalty with integrity. The Marines had confused loyalty as integrity, right? Because that's what this U.S. service is about. You get an order, you obey that order. But it reveals, I think, something about the truth of our character and the nature of human beings and even all militaries around the world, you can carry out a wicked order and be guilty. And the fact that you were obeying a command faithfully out of loyalty does not sort of absolve you of the guilt because what's more important even than loyalty is integrity. And that's what whistleblowers do, right? Like a real whistleblower. They say, look, I could go along with the flow here, but this is wrong. This company, this factory, this organization is asking me to do something wrong. I, my conscience will not let me do it. And so integrity is more important even than loyalty, as valuable as loyalty is. Character is about being different from the surrounding culture, even when it hurts or puts you under the spotlight. And it's not easy. Maribel and I, as we drive around St. Louis, we, 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 will, we will look at homes and we'll say, yeah, you know, that home has character. And there may be a neighborhood that's beautiful, but all the houses are kind of cookie cutter. And they're really nice, you know, nice, beautiful homes that are, you know, going for a high dollar. But like some of these homes in St. Louis, and you know, for those of you who are from St. Louis, I'm not. But for some St. Louis, you know what I'm talking about, like some of these gingerbread houses, like they got tons of character. And what we mean by that, Maribel and I, when we drive around the city, is they're different. And that's what it means to have character. It means that we live lives that when the rubber meets the road, we're different. We're not going to go along with the crowd. And that actually may cause people to hate us or think we're hateful. But that's what it means to have characters, to be different. It's not a cookie-cutter model of living. So here's an application point, okay? A character-driven life does right things when tested or tempted to do wrong things. It's not just what, what you believe, but it's what comes out the meat grinder of temptation and circumstance on the other side. 
So, to ask our question again, to circle back, what does it mean to be humble? And here's the answer. To live gracious, unassuming, character-driven lives and look at God's promise for doing this. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's a reward. And it's not just an eternity, it's in this life. And some of you have experienced that reward, where you have humbled yourselves. You've lowered yourselves, you've abased yourselves, and you've seen God lift you up and exalt you as a result of it. It may be on a job where you're working and you're waiting for promotion and you could be cutthroat, you know, and rat out other people and take credit for the things they do or whatever or always talk about how great you are or you've maybe had this experience where you stuck it out with prayer, you did what was right as unto the Lord and in due time God elevated you or exalted you. And maybe there are lots of other circumstances where that plays itself out, but this is the promise from God. And even if it doesn't happen in any particular circumstance, God says it will happen ultimately. And that's who heaven and eternity will be filled with. Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and in eternity for all, forever, for all time, they will be the ones who God exalts. And there is this promise in the gospel that the last shall be first. those who lower themselves will be exalted. It's counterintuitive. Totally against what it means to be successful on TikTok, or, I guess, or Instagram, or Facebook, or whatever, right? To humble yourselves, not to pretend you have a life you don't. But it's the gospel. And the rewards are eternal. Let's give thanks and pray. Father, Thank you now for your word. Thank you, oh God, because we're being torn even at this moment by all sorts of competing ideas about what it means to live a good, fun, happy life, to live a good life. But Lord, the gospel of Jesus beckons us to humble ourselves, to be gracious with people we disagree with, to have a generosity and magnanimity of spirit towards even our enemies. To be unassuming like Jesus was about who he was, about the gifts we have and capabilities. Because we're not boasting or promoting ourselves, but you. And most importantly, that integrity would guide everything we do, that our beliefs would not simply be a list of things in our head, but in our heart and in our hands, the way we live, what, the things we do. That we might live character-driven lives, oh God. Empower us by your spirit to do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.